So for those of you that are joining with us for the first time, we've simply been taking a look at, at not absolutes, not black and white scenarios, but, but wisdom. What is the wise thing to do? We, we wanna make better decisions so that, so that we can actually live better, healthier, overflowing, generous, life-giving lives, right? The choices we make determine the people we become. And so we, hopefully we want wisdom. You definitely need it. Whether you want it or not, trust me, you need it, I need it, we need wisdom. So before I go any further, I wanna get you to stand with me, please. And we're gonna pray. You don't have to do this, but I would encourage you. For me, it's, it's, it's very much just a, it's a heart posture that is shown by a physical posture. We're just out of surrender, just a, an attitude of humility. I wanna encourage you to close your eyes, open your hands, and to have an open heart. And Father, I pray that you would share with us whatever you wanna share with us. Remind us of anything that you wanna remind us of. Reveal to us maybe for the first time anything that you wanna to reveal to us. But Lord, more than anything else, I do pray that you'd help us to see you. Help us to see your heart. Help us to see your love for us. And God, I just feel especially to pray for, for us to have eyes to see the invitations that you're extending to us. God, I believe that today you would have an invitation for every single person in terms of the next step. It'll look different for different people, but there is a next right thing to do for every one of us as we follow you, as we trust you, as we, as we risk in trusting you, especially when we're not sure, when we're not confident, when, we, when maybe we don't have that history in our relationship with you. Maybe, maybe some of us are still exploring faith. God, wherever we are in that journey, I pray that you'd help us to recognize your prompting, your invitation, and that you'd help us to do the next right thing. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go ahead and take your seats. By means of a very quick recap, we've looked at a few different choices over the last several weeks. The first one is what we call the integrity choice and where we simply asked, and I'm encouraging you to ask, and just so you know, I have been harassed by this question every now and then, so, so I don't share anything with you that I don't want to be challenged by and, and responsive to. The question being, am I being honest with myself really? Am I being honest with myself, really? I don't know about you, but there are times where I'm like, oh, Jason Render, how are you so good at lying to yourself? At like smudging, you know, just, just, just smudging some of the edges, smudging some of the corners. So, am I being honest with myself, really? This, guys, this will, this will, this will lead us, can't think of the right word, this will lead us to wisdom. This will help us in our journey. This will result, that's what I was looking for, very complex word. This will result in wisdom. If I'm asking myself regularly, am I being honest with myself really? Before I, before I take that step, before I take that promotion, before I take that opportunity, before I say yes to the 47th thing on the same day, before you spend, and you, uh, am I being honest with myself really? The second choice was the legacy choice, where we simply are asking what legacy will I leave? In fact, we're trying to make it so simple, we have it up on the wall, above the doors as we walk out every single week because every single week, and I'm, I, c I, could not, I cannot be more serious about this, every week we are making choices that are contributing towards the legacy that we leave. Whether it's good or whether it's not so good, we are leaving a legacy and obviously, hopefully, we want that legacy to be a good one, a life-giving legacy, not, not the legacy that so many of us have inherited. And, and we can either focus on what we've inherited if it's not good and feel like a victim, or we can choose to 
change the story for those that are coming after us. The third choice, or simply the conscience choice, is there a tension that deserves my attention? Is there, is there something where like, oh, there's just that brief delay, there's just that, oh, you know, let me think about it for an extra moment, that little <coughs> of the Holy Spirit. Is there a tension that deserves my attention? That's often the way, not always, but that's often the way that God is trying to get our attention in making wise choices. Then the maturity choice. Simply what is the wise thing to do? It is often not as simple as is it right, is it wrong? We took a look at that passage of scripture where it says that, that, that even though all things might be permissible, they're not all beneficial. Yeah. So again, we can excuse things, we can justify things, just a lie about things, because technically it might be permissible, but, but is that the wise thing to do? Truth be told, there's a lot that you can get away with in your marriage, in your relationships with your kids, in, your, in, in how you approach your schoolwork, in, in, in decisions that you make at work or, or your work ethic, the effort that you put in. There, there, there's a lot that we can get away with technically, but is it the wise thing to do? There are things that we can get away with physically, like it's not, it's not illegal, it's not immoral, but is it wise? Are we, are we investing into a healthy future? So it's the maturity question. Remember, Morality is commanded. Maturity is? Holy smokes. I mean, I've said this many times. I'm so grateful that Sam remembers. I mean, it's not discouraging in the least. Morality is commanded. Maturity is? Guys, we're invited. If we're waiting for God to make us do something that'll lead to maturity, well, you're gonna keep waiting until the day you die. That's why we have to, okay, to be blunt, some of us just need to grow up. We can't keep thinking like children, acting like children. You, you may be a, a 20-year-old Christian, but you're a one-year-old Christian 20 times over. And, and we still keep making the same excuses, and, and we just, and we're getting frustrated and discouraged, and we blame God, but God's like, Hello, I'm inviting you, like the ball's in your court. Yeah. So don't wait for God to make you do something that's gonna lead to life. Let's rather listen out yeah. for the invitations. How do I hear the invitation? Well, spending time in his word, spending time praying, and, and actually not just praying in terms of just the work of words, but also trying to listen and hear what he has to say. Yeah. The fifth choice last week was, was largely, I know that a, a lot was covered, but, but very much, I would say, p- falls under the consequences umbrella. What potential consequences will this choice have? Our choices always have consequences, and so we want to play the movie forward. We want to take a look at where is this going to lead us to. Now, the question we're going to ask today, hopefully it's not on the screen yet, is, is a question that I believe brings a huge amount of clarity to every moral, ethical and relational decision that we bump up against. How many of you know that we bump up against many decisions that aren't just black and white, yeah. right? It is the love questions, the love choice, and it's simply this, what does love require of me? What does love actually require of me in this situation? What does love, re- and, and that's not just to your binakran, okay? That's, if you're a Christian, you are called to love all people. You don't have to like it, but you're not God. I'm not God. We are called to love all people. I cannot love God more and not be stirred, inspired, moved 
to love other people more because the more I see myself through God's eyes, the more it affects how I see others through his eyes and there is a dignity attached. There is a value attached. And so the question, again, is so much more. It's not less than what is right and wrong, but it's so much more than what is right and wrong. What does love require of me? And I would imagine that many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, which, again, we don't really want to be because we'd rather just a lie to ourselves. If we're really honest with ourselves, I think a lot of the time we have a pretty good idea of what love requires of us. Bluxom. That's frustrating, hey? Because I'd rather be able to claim ignorance. But actually, if I stop and think about it, not, not always, I want to be clear. There are many times where I'm like, Lord, I really need wisdom. I really, that's why it's a wise choice. It's a wise issue. It's a wise question. It's a wise prayer. Because there are times, there, there are times where I genuinely don't know what love looks like in this particular situation, this complex situation. But there are a lot of scenarios that we face where we probably, with God's help, can answer simply, what does love require of me? Many of us are familiar with what has famously become known as the golden rule. Jesus uttered these words, recorded in the book of Matthew, chapter seven, verse 12, where he says, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This makes sense, right? You would think so. Right? Right? You would think that this makes sense. Have you read the news lately? Have you seen how employers treat employees and how employees treat employers, how landlords treat tenants? I am increasingly disturbed by what appears to be an inability for someone to put themselves into the other person's shoes that they are oppressing or exploiting or mistreating or abusing or betraying or neglecting. So you would think that this is simple. And truth be told, it is easy for us to see it in others. Sometimes it's a little bit more complex to see it in ourselves because that's human nature. We're busy, we're distracted, we can easily justify. We, we judge others based on their behavior, we judge ourselves based on our intentions. So we've got to ask ourselves, not just my intention, but my actual behavior. Am I treating someone like I would want to be treated if I were in their shoes? Which is why power is not only a privilege, it is a significant responsibility. We will be held accountable for any power that we have, whether that is relational uh, capital and power, whether that is financial power, whether it is influential power. Power is not just a privilege, it is that, but it's also a responsibility. What do I do with that? Do to others what you would like them to do to you. But then Jesus goes on to say, this is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. Now, for most of us, that's like, okay, cool, simple. But for Jesus' hearers in that moment, it would have been quite shocking because they, they knew that there were over 600 laws recorded in, in what is otherwise known as the Law of Moses or found in the first five books of the Old Testament. And then there are all these books, all these prophetic books where, where additional instructions and, and heart attitudes were communicated through the prophets, by God, through the prophets, throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is saying something pretty radical. He's saying, listen, if you will just treat someone else like you'd like to be treated, you, this is the essence. Loving other people is the essence of everything that is taught in the law and the prophets. Now, just to be very clear, please, in case you've zoned out already, you're starting to buffer, just, just get back here for a moment, okay? 
I want to be abundantly clear. You don't form theology or doctrine based on a single scripture. Okay, it has to be in the context of the full library of Scripture. It, it has to be able to um, confirm and affirm one another. That, so, so that's why you would look at several passages to build this up. So, so just, I'm saying that to emphasize that this isn't, this isn't a new religion where, hey, if you just love other people, like you've sorted out all the laws and the prophets. No, th- there are lots of good people in the world. There are lots of people in the world that are, if we're honest, way more loving than a lot of Christians. Sadly so. So I just wanna quickly caution you that this isn't saying as long as you're a good person, as long as you're a loving person. No, no, it's, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. So you can be a loving person, not to all people, but to a lot of people, without following Jesus. But you can't follow Jesus and be impacted by Jesus and not grow in loving other people. So we, I'll expand this in a few moments. But then, okay. I'm just wanting to quickly give you some perspective. So this is something that Jesus says. He's summing up the whole, basically the whole Old Testament. But then, shortly before he is arrested, on the last night of Jesus' life, before he's arrested and then crucified while he's with his disciples, he says in John chapter 13, as recorded. So now, now bear in mind he's already said this other thing, right? In Matthew chapter seven. Now, a, a different evening later on is being recorded in John chapter 13, verse 34, where Jesus says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Now, if you're paying attention, you're like, wait, that's not new, right? Yeah. Okay, but if we read on, not yet, but if we read on, we'll, we'll see what he's saying. But, but just to clarify, we have one of the passages on the wall over there. It is recorded in both Matthew 22, verse 37, Mark chapter 12, verse 30, and Luke chapter 10, verse 27. In each of these passages, it is recorded Religious leaders asking Jesus what the most important commandment is, and in each case, he says it is to love, effectively, he says it is to love God, and it is to love people. So he's already said all these things, okay? Love God, love people. Treat people, love people as you want to be loved or as you want to be treated. Now he says, but I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. That's not the new part. The next part is the new part. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. That's different. That is different. That actually goes beyond how I want to be treated. That goes beyond, I mean, sure, it includes how I would like to be loved, but it, it just, it's so much more. And I can't help but wonder if Jesus' disciples, listening to him say this, if, if, if maybe a few different examples went through their minds from the previous three years, because remember, they'd been living with him. Like, they didn't just pop in and have like a you know, quick connection for an hour every week on a Sunday. They were living with him. They were following him. They were eating together. They were fishing together. They were walking together. They were witnessing miracles. They were, they were witnessing how Jesus treated interruptions. How tre- By the way, I think it's the vast majority of miracles were actually interruptions, just, just by the way while he was on his way to doing something else. They, they witnessed Jesus challenge, encourage, heal, give time and attention. When they needed something, he's like, you know, like money to pay the temple tax, he's like, oh, go grab a fish. There'll be enough in there for you, know, you and me. And brings back, a, I think it was a silver coin. Even though Jesus knew that according to this new era, the temple shouldn't be taxing people, but 
but he, but he was still okay with just trying to pick his battle. They would, have, they would have witnessed, Peter would have witnessed Jesus. After walking on the water, calling him to come, Peter being bold enough to actually step out of the boat. Say what you like about Peter. That took faith, okay? And then he starts to take his eyes off of Jesus, and he looks at the waves, and, the, and he starts to drown. He would, have, he would have looked into the eyes of Jesus and not found shame and intense disappointment that, you know, his faith had shaken. In fact, Jesus would remember that on that same night, sorry, Peter would remember later on that on that same night, Jesus said to him, hey, Satan's asked to sift you. I've already prayed for you because you are going to deny me three times. But I've already prayed for you that when you repent and turn back that you would strengthen your brothers. They, they have so many examples of how Jesus loved them. And that is what we are called to do, to love others the way that Jesus loves us. In fact, Jesus went on the next sentence to say, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Imagine if that, imagine if that were really prevalent and real in our world today. Imagine if that was the most distinctive quality that stood out from every person that claims to be a Christian. Not their outrage, not their condemnation, not their aggression, but imagine if the, if the overriding, imagine if Hollywood was so, like they were so frustrated that they couldn't misrepresent Christianity because pretty much every Christian they ever came across was outstanding in the way that they love people. Can you imagine if that was the overriding? Now, now again, we can focus on others and we wish and we can make a broad note, but we have to look at ourselves. Well, those that we work with, those that we're at school with, those that we live in connection with, do they see that we are his disciples? Now, just so you know, a disciple is never complete, so, so you're never gonna be able to do this perfectly, but are we growing in loving other people the way that Jesus loves us? I want you to notice that, that Jesus wasn't saying that the, like his primary concern wasn't that they would believe something, although that's, I think that that's a given. His primary concern was that they became something and did something, which is why you'll hear us talking a lot about being with Jesus so that we become like Jesus, so that we, so that we would do what Jesus would do if he were us. That's, that's the order. Those are the overriding principles. So what does love require of me? I don't have a lot of answers. I have principles. And I think one of the reasons, sincerely, that God doesn't answer every single potential scenario that you and I can face because I really wish he did. Seriously, I wish there was like a Wikipedia that I could just click on and just get the perfect answer to every single scenario that I face. Anyone else? Yeah. I'd love that. But, but I genuinely believe, I feel like God has often reminded me, Jason, if that was the case, you wouldn't need a relationship with me. You wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. So I'm warning you up front, I'm gonna touch on principles in the last few minutes we have remaining, but you and I, we need the Holy Spirit. And can I, I know today's a little bit challenging. Can I challenge you not to be lazy with this? Like, yes, it takes a bit of effort. It takes a bit of effort to slow down, to pause, to, to ask God to give us wisdom. And that's why I do agree with that statement by Corrie ten Boom, that if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Because there's the same outcome, because the busier we are, the less we are even able to pay attention. The less we are even able to notice the things 
that God's Holy Spirit is trying to tell us about how to respond in a situation. And again, I don't think he's, this might happen occasionally, but for the most part, he's not going to scream at us and get our attention. So, some of you will be familiar with what is famously known as the love chapter found in the New Testament. The first book of Corinthians, chapter 13, is often read out in weddings, which is ironic. I mean, it's, it's, it's relevant, but that's not actually the context it was written into. It was actually written into the context of people serving together in a local congregation uh, where, where, where we can do great things. We can speak the languages of angels. We can have faith that move, moves mountains. We can give everything we have to the poor, Paul says in the first three verses. But he keeps on coming back. He just rips. He keeps coming back. You can do all these amazing things, but if you don't love others, you're nothing. You're a resounding gong. You're a clanging cymbal. He's saying, he's saying this to, to people, to, to, to church members that are serving together, and then he goes on just briefly. It's not an exhaustive list, but he touches on some principles of what love might require of us. Reading from verse four, first of all, love requires patience and kindness, right? It says love is patient and kind. Yeah. If we forget everything else, like if that's all we focus on, now, again, that doesn't answer every question, but the principles, okay, God, what does, patience, what does patience require of me in this situation? What does kindness require of me in this situation? And don't allow the world's definition of those things to distract you. No, no, God, what does kindness and patience look like in the situation? Almost everything else we do, from a loving point of view, can hang off of those two things. The way we handle conflict. Am I being patient? Am I, being, am I willing to hear, to understand, not just hear, to work on my rebuttal? And it's a good rebuttal. I've got, I've, like you're just waiting for the gap because you've got the zinger. Or am I actually being patient? Again, wanting to actually, so love others like you want to be like, am I actually wanting to understand what is hurting them? What is irritating them? What is annoying them? What is the essence of the issue? Am I being patient? Am I being kind? That's not just reactive, that's proactive. Guys, everything, everything hangs off of those two things. But we need God's Holy Spirit to help us apply this. You cannot just follow someone else's formula, someone else's model. I say that because I know some of the situations that some of you are facing. And I know the many different situations that I've faced, and it's not just a one-size-fits-all. We need wisdom in applying kindness and patience. I say that because, for example, sometimes the kindest thing that you can do to someone is allow them to experience the consequences of their choices. Yeah. Now, that doesn't feel like the worldly, sentimental, warm and fuzzy, oh, I'm such a nice person type of kindness. You actually can feel like quite a dog. You can feel like a jerk when you are not rescuing a person from their own choices and consequences, but sometimes the most loving thing that you and I can do is actually allow that person to grow up. And the only way that they grow up is to take responsibility for the choices. But now again, what does taking responsibility for their choices look like? Great question. You have to ask the Holy Spirit. Because there isn't one fixed answer for every single situation that you deal with. But I can tell you that a lot of well-meaning people have often damaged people or kept them handicapped because of a sentimental sense of what kindness looks like. If as a parent, you think that kindness is always making your kids happy, you are destroying them. Next, love requires celebrating and honoring. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. 
In other words, we can celebrate someone else's successes, their wins, because I'm securing God. I don't have to compare well to someone else. I don't have to stand out according to, to other people. I can, actually, I can actually celebrate. I can rejoice with someone that is rejoicing, with someone that is doing well. I don't have, and again, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you know how to not look jealous. <laughs> That's not what the Bible's talking about. If you're a professional Christian, you know exactly how to look. <laughs> hey man, so happy for you. And you have like an ulcer in your stomach. Like, no guys, that's, well, I'm not talking about just looking the part. Having said that, having said that, again, just to be real, sometimes, yes, you do have to decide, because choice, wise choices lead, appropriate feelings follow. So, so yes, sometimes you might have to tell yourself to be supportive while working on being supportive. Anyway, but it doesn't only celebrate, it doesn't only require celebrating, it requires honoring. I want you to think about this for a moment. I, probably the person that, that has made me think about this the most is author and pastor Andy Stanley, where I've heard him mention many times that in their home with their kids, they, they only ever had two rules, at least from him. Honor your mother and never lie. He was like, we'll deal with the rest. But honor your mother and never lie. If you honor your mother, you're honoring me. You dishonor your mother, you deal with me, type of thing, and never lie. Also, someone I, I deeply respect and appreciate, another author and pastor, Chris Hodges, also, they, they, one of their biggest rules in their house growing up with, I don't know, I think they had four boys or, f- or five, I think four boys and a daughter, so five kids, was, was if you tell the truth, basically you kind of like get a get out of jail free card. What, what he meant, now, now, again, he wouldn't rescue them from natural consequences, but they were like, if you tell us the truth, we won't punish you for what you did. Both of them are getting at the same point, that nothing destroys relationships like dishonesty. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing, nothing. You can cope with, God, seriously, you can work on everything else yeah. if there's honesty. But dishonesty means we're not dealing with the real person. We, 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 we're keeping things very deliberately from one another. So, so honor, Andy Stanley gives another example of where they, they fostered a daughter from, I think, the age of 15, I think, give or take. Um, she'd been with them a few times before that, I think her and her siblings, and, and long story short, she landed up coming back to them and stayed with them for, for several years after that. And, and he said that the one day... She kind of stopped him and his wife in the kitchen and like, okay, what are the rules? Like, how does it work here? Because if you've been in a foster care system, whatever home you're living in, there are a bunch of rules. You want to know what they are. You want to know what boxes to tick. And he, he told her, like, you know that's not really how it works here because she'd been connected to them long enough. Again, they don't have a whole bunch of rules. But he went to his study, grabbed a piece of paper, wrote a single word on it, put it down on the kitchen table and said, this will cover everything. She turned it over. It was the word honor. She rolled her eyes and walked away. And the reason for that, he says, and he had her permission to share this, this is now years later, is that if you give me 10 rules, I can find 10 ways to get around those rules. If you give me a bunch of don'ts, I'll find a way to not do what you told me not to do. But it's the bare minimum. But when it's honor, 
It's not less than what is right and wrong, but it's more than. So, so you're not just trying to get away with what is you know, unlawful. You are, it's like, and that's why it's so frustrating, because it's like, oh, like, I've got to dig deep. I've got to think deep. I've got to, I've got to give so much. Like, I've got to honor? Right now, I would imagine that you can think of a situation, be it at home, work, school, where you might be technically getting away with what is not technically gossip or what is not technically defiance, like, like to others. Like, like no one can acute, you know, convict you in a court of law of disunity, division. But if you're being honest with yourself, really, Man, you're sowing little seeds that are actually dishonoring. Again, being honoring doesn't mean that you don't include hard truths. Next, love requires selflessness. It does not demand its own way, is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. Think about how that alone would solve most relational problems now i always feel like i have to counterbalance these things because again we live in a world where there's a lot of abuse and a lot of misuse i'm not talking about letting the other person have whatever they want and do whatever they want at the expense of your safety and health or anything this isn't about that and believe it or not historically a lot of abuse has been done in marriages and in families while people are quoting scripture but it's because they're quoting a technical scripture and not looking at, is this loving? Is this honoring? So when you're forcing someone to do something against their will, that's not loving or honoring. It doesn't demand its own way. Love requires soul care. Now maybe you've read this passage before and thinking, wait, what, where? Well, there's a short little portion where he says, it is not irritable. Some versions say it's not easily angered. Now, you can try and tell yourself not to be irritable, not to be easily angered. But I don't know about you, when I'm not getting enough sleep, when I'm, when I'm burning the candle on both ends, and I'm, and, and, and I'm, especially with seasons where I'm just giving out all the time, I'm someone that does need some personal quiet space to replenish, there's an introverted nature to me, I'm embarrassed by how irritable I can get. So that's why I'm saying it's not, it's not just a, hey, Jason, don't be irritable. Like, like, snap out of it. How many of you tried to get that to work on someone else? Hey, snap out of it. How does it work for you, Reese? Not, not well, right? Okay, okay. And then the fight began. Like, that's the worst thing to do with someone when they're irritable, right? Hey, just stop being irritable. Snap out of it. It's like, ah, like the beast. You just unleash the beast, right? So that's why I'm saying don't wait until you are completely empty and, and prickly and easily irritable. No, I'm saying that's why love actually requires soul care. Soul care, I mean, where you are looking after and replenishing your emotional tank so that you actually have capacity for stress, capacity for being inconvenienced, capacity for waiting in a line, capacity for what that lunatic's gonna do in traffic, capacity for your boss asking something extraordinary of you that he shouldn't and it's the last moment and he's... 
Again, it doesn't mean that you allow people to override boundaries, but, you, but you're not easily angered. You are not irritable. Love requires soul care. Almost done. Love requires forgiveness. Again, I think this passage can be so easily misunderstood because remember, we have to interpret according to the whole Bible, not just to one line, but, it, but there's this passage where it says, it keeps no record of being wronged. Now, at face value, reading that in, the, in this English translation, that I think could easily sound like we should never ever recall anything that someone's done to us. We should never hold people responsible for abuse or neglect or, or damaging behavior. I don't think it means that. In fact, all you need to forget is a bad memory. Some people need to remember. Some people that have been abused, misused, neglected, abandoned over and over again, there is, there is wisdom for, for actually protecting, in some cases, yourself or your family. But I do think that this is a heart attitude where I'm not constantly keeping someone identified with past behavior, with past mistakes. You know when you use the words always and never in a fight? <laughs> Which is never accurate, because it can't ever be never and it can't ever be always? Well, that's getting historical. And then hysterical. But, but a, heart, a heart attitude, love, what does love require of me? Love requires me to try and forgive. And, and depending on the circumstances, we need God to help us forgive. And again, we need God to help us know what forgiveness looks like because forgiveness does not mean necessarily trusting again. It does not necessarily mean reconciling. You don't reconcile with your rapist. I'm, I'm trying to think of the worst example, I'm sorry. You don't reconcile with someone like that. But, and again, I know how radical this sounds. With God's help, you can forgive that person in the sense that you, that you release their hold on you. You release their hold on your heart. And there would be some, every one of us would have examples where people have done you in in business, where people have, have maligned your name, where people have, have mistreated you, abused you, broken trust. It doesn't necessarily, now in some cases it can lead towards reconciliation and it can even lead towards trust. But, but before anything else, it is recognizing what God has for, how much God has forgiven us of, and it's giving up that grudge. It's giving up that desire for revenge. We don't. We do everything we can not to weaponize a person's past. Again, I realize how complex that is. We need the Holy Spirit. And last says that love requires hoping for the best. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. I'm so mindful of how at face value that could put pressure and, and strain on people that are in very, very complex situations. And again, I wanna just encourage you that I really do believe that God can give us wisdom for that. I think that we can hope for the best in a person, in a scenario, while that person is not open to God doing a work in their lives. So you may not allow that person to still have that, that effect or that influence on your life, but you can still hope that one day they come to their senses. Think of the story of the prodigal son, which represents God and people that are, that are far from him. 
He didn't go running after the son. He allowed him to go. You could argue that he hoped for the best, but he allowed him to come to his senses and then to come back home. Hope is a powerful thing. Hope means that you can keep praying while you keep your distance. If, if it's something, dis- guys, I'm, I'm talking about like extreme examples, but for the, for the majority of us, it's not that extreme. Sometimes we really do just need to believe the best. Sometimes we need to give each other the benefit of the doubt. D- don't, don't you hate it when people just assume the best of you? Uh, sorry, assume. Uh, when people just assume the worst of you? It's like, can you give me a chance? Like, you're just assuming the worst. Well, let's not do that. You know what happens when you assume, right? I'm not going to say it out loud because you would think that's inappropriate. Soon I heard a story this week about a um, like short version, quickly, about a, about a, a mother who's a heroin addic- uh, addict. She's, she's had several kids. Um, a few of them she continued to use during the pregnancy, so just you, you can imagine some of, the, some of the consequences on the children. Um, the father... Uh, then she goes missing, she, she's prostituting herself, it's, um, she falls pregnant through prostitution, then goes missing, the father runs a gym, leaves home at hoppers four every morning, gets back at nine o'clock, literally locks the rest of the kids, the oldest I think is eight or nine, in the house um, for the rest of the day, uh, completely neglected, in many cases, like I don't know how long between bars, the, don't go to school, etc., etc. All of that is to say that Love might require some uncomfortable things. It doesn't mean that you don't love the person when you want to take children that are being neglected and abused out of a very unhealthy situation. It doesn't mean that you don't love the father. It doesn't mean that you don't love the mother. Those, I would imagine in a group this size, there are a few of you that have dealt with addiction in your own family. Certainly we have in, on many fronts. And it's hard to figure out what does love look like in the situation. How do you allow this parent, so, so in this case, it's a grandparent that's trying to get the kids out and finding it almost impossible. It's hard for this grandparent, I think, to navigate what does it look like to love her daughter, who is the one doing all this harm and trying to get her into rehab and trying to get her help while, while still protecting the innocent, vulnerable children. I'm, I'm using these examples to say that it's, it's not always as neat and tidy as we'd like. And it's not always gonna feel like it's a win on every level. You might feel grief and pain while you're having to love someone with certain limits, with certain boundaries. But can you hope? I'd say that this mother can still hope for her daughter, but, but you can report this daughter protecting these kids while hoping for the best. Always hoping does not mean not holding people accountable. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is allow someone to work through the consequences. So, in conclusion, how do we love like Jesus? Because it'd be great if we could just pass the test, right? We've, we've heard some stuff. We've, maybe you've taken some notes. Not many of you, though, I've got to say. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe we've, you know, on, a, on an academic level, we're like, okay, okay, this, that, that, okay. How many of you know that that doesn't actually do anything? It's very hard to just will yourself towards patience and kindness. It is very hard to will yourself towards not being irritable. It is very hard to not keep a record of wrongs when there have been a lot of wrongs. It is very hard sometimes to hope for the best. So how do we love like Jesus? 
I believe the how is the same as the what. Jesus said, John 13, 34, love each other just as I have loved you. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you will allow me to love you, your heart will actually be changed. Your heart will actually be softened. Because there are different ways that we change. Some are long-lasting, some are not. Guilt might last briefly, it doesn't last long. Pain, pain for sure is a huge teacher in our lives and it can cause us to learn things. But the most life-giving, longest-lasting source of change is love. When you allow someone to love you, something in you wants to love back and wants to please and wants to change. Jesus instructed us to love others like he loves us, and that's also how we will love others, if we will allow him to love us. The key to loving like Jesus is positioning ourselves to experience the love of Jesus. Or put another way, the key to loving Jesus is positioning ourselves to be loved by Jesus. Ephesians 3 verse 18 and 19 says, May you have the power to understand as all God's people should how wide, how long, how high, how deep His love is. Then don't miss this next sentence. May you experience the love of Christ. Though it is too great to understand fully. Okay, wait. In other words, it's not just an intellectual knowledge. It is something that you experience. But again, too often I think we're waiting for God to overwhelm us with an experience instead of regularly, consistently, patiently, constantly positioning ourselves to actually experience the love of God. What does it look like, Jason? It looks like sitting down as close to every day as possible with as few interruptions as possible. If you're using your phone for devotional, put it on flight mode. It is slowing down to be loved by God. It is slowing down to reflect on the truths of Scripture. It is slowing. Well, Jason, I've done that at least three times. No, no. It is constantly positioning ourselves. I want to encourage you to persevere. You might do it every day this week, come back next, month, next Sunday and say, hey, Jason, I want my money back. It didn't work for me. I would encourage you, no, no, carry on. Carry on. Carry on positioning yourself. If you're anything like me, you might be relying on, okay, when I have enough answers, when I have enough explanations, then I will be certain. But then you have the answers, and you have enough information, and you have enough knowledge, and it's like, this still isn't working for me. Because we need to experience. Put another way, we need to slow down to look at God looking at us with love. I promise you something changes. Something changes. On a very practical level, something that you might want to try is to download a free app simply called the Pause app, available on Android and, and of course, the anointed Apple devices. <laughs> Joking. Um, where it just gives you an opportunity. For, for the most part, a lot of people will just do the one-minute pause, and it will lead you through just, just something very brief, something very encouraging and reflective. There are, longer, there are longer sort of meditations, if you want to call it. Don't panic at the word. There are reflections. 
It is to pause, it's to slow down, it's to be present, it's to think about what you think about, it's to, it's to allow your mind to be washed, to be reframed, to be renewed. And, but even then, that might not be enough, but, but put enough of that together as you keep positioning yourself to be with Jesus, you might start experiencing the love of Jesus. And I'm telling you that there's nothing, nothing that has changed me more and will continue to change me more, nothing has a more life-giving effect on me than allowing God to love me. I've referenced this gentleman before, um, Brennan Manning, who was famously quoted as saying, he's passed away already, that he, he wonders if maybe when he gets to heaven one day, God won't look at him and say, why wouldn't you let me love you more? He battled an alcohol addiction, I think his whole adult life. And so obviously he had to work through a lot of guilt, getting sober, falling off the wagon again, trying again. And he, in his opinion, in the end, <clears throat> he just felt like, he didn't think the first thing God would ask him is, why didn't you do more of this? Why didn't you do more of that? But why didn't you let me love you more? I'm just telling you, allowing God to love us will absolutely influence the way we love others. 